I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hey, Mark, great to see you. Good to see you, Miriam. I'm looking forward to our conversation with Andrew today. Yeah, likewise. Andrew has a really interesting background. He's been in industry, in law, in government. He was a journalist at one point. He's written a book. Uh, I know he's going to have a lot to say today. I'm looking forward to it. Let's jump in. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of NAI We Trust. Today, we're very excited to have with us Andrew Burt. Andrew is managing partner at bnh.ai, a boutique law firm focused on AI and analytics. He's also the chief legal officer at Immuta. He previously served as special advisor for policy to the head of the FBI's investigation cyber division. He's also a reporter in his previous life, and that's why you will see him writing frequently and eloquently, uh, currently in the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Harvard Business Review, where he's a regular contributor. He also has written books, including American Hysteria, The Untold Story of Mass Political Extremism in the United States. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. We're so pleased to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I'm particularly excited to have you with us today because uh, as many people know, at Equal AI, we focus on three main audiences. One is the business community, and and there are several of us in that space, uh, Mark and the World Economic Forum and others, uh, also in the policy world. And again, there are many of us in that space. The third thread that we're really fascinated by is the legal community and motivating lawyers to do more work in the responsible AI space. And that's a much smaller community. There are fewer people we get to talk to. And and so that's why I love when I get to speak with you. And I love reading your work on this topic. I'd be so curious to share with our listeners today and to learn more about how you first became interested in this space of legal, responsible AI. Um, yeah, happily. Well, it's it's um, it's kind of a long story. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, when I was working in the government at the FBI and in the intelligence community, I um, kind of had a, a front row seat to the importance of data science um, uh, broadly and AI in, in, in particular. Um, and what I started really to see um, is that just a few data scientists with the access to the to, to the right data. Um, could extract insights that were really unimaginable. In previous decades, it would have taken, you know, dozens or hundreds of analysts to do something that a few data scientists um, training a model could do. And so I, I very quickly kind of um, came to see the power of a lot of what was going on. And I also kind of came to view data scientists as kind of the new stewards or like tour guides for policymakers for, for the 21st century. Um, I, I really noticed, I think, a shift in... Um, the folks that were doing a lot of the briefings um, on the Hill or in the White House, um, and really, I think, where a lot of the insights lay. And so from that experience, I helped um, build a startup that came out of the intelligence community focused on on automating data governance, um, which was really um, kind of an attempt um, to give governance and compliance um, an increased role, kind of equal footing with a lot of the other technologies um, uh, in, in the data science world. And so I spent a number of years kind of being the only lawyer in a room full of data scientists, both in the government and outside of the government um, in, in industry. And all of that kind of led to BNH.ai, the boutique law firm that I run right now, 
which is really it's it's jointly run by lawyers and data scientists based in in DC, which uniquely allows for for law firms to to be run by lawyers and non-lawyers. And really, our, kind of our core thesis is that the only way to get these technologies right is to really closely intermingle legal expertise and technical and, and data science expertise. Great. So uh, continuing on this biographical thread, because you just have such an interesting background, you started your career as a journalist uh, looking at mass political extremism in the U.S., which uh, at the time wasn't being talked about uh, to the degree that it is now in terms of um, the way in which AI and uh, social media and platforms are actually fueling that and driving that. Uh, you moved into government and now you're in law and you work in the private sector. Over the course of this period, you know, how have you seen this conversation about ethical AI and, and also AI law and policy and regulation evolve? And, 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 and what do you see as being kind of the key issues that are facing policymakers and also company decision makers today? Um, really good question. And I will try not to talk forever uh, uh, after that question. Talk as long as you want, Andrew. We, we, we've, we've got plenty of time. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you humoring me. Um, I, I think, honestly, I think the biggest challenge is hype and snake oil and, and fluff. There's so much that's exciting about AI. Um, so many people are talking about it. So many different organizations and, and groups are extolling the virtues of AI. Um, uh, and yet a very small subset of that group is actually doing it and is actually doing it in ways that drive value. And so um, where we come in is basically, um, uh, we kind of come in at the end of the hype cycle once organizations are actually developing it, actually deploying it and finding out that this very, very overhyped technology can be great, but it also brings with it a lot of risks. And so from our perspective, um, there's a reason for the hype. This really, I think, you know, I believe, we at BNH believe, this is a transformative technology. Um, at the same time, I think the hype is legitimately distracting and it causes um, organizations and policymakers, frankly, everyone involved, data scientists, to focus on the wrong things. And so just to get very, very kind of operational, or I should say tactical, one of the things we see all over the place um, is this basically, it's almost like a series of dominoes, but usually someone in senior management or a board member or CEO will um, uh, see a TED talk. Um, uh, uh, this is like a, a, a real failure mode for AI. They'll see something, AI is the future, they'll get really excited about AI. Suddenly there'll be a mandate from up on high. Um, here's some extra budget. We're betting the company on the future of AI, kind of go. And then new data science um, uh, programs or you know, new fancy uh, chief data uh, officer will get hired and spun up um, uh, frequently in that, that same kind of um, uh, interaction. We'll see organizations release AI ethical principles um, that are very frequently uh, high level, ambiguous, and not really uh, possible to operationalize. Um, and then about 12 to 18 months after all of this goes on, you'll get an organization that's trained all of these models, is ready to deploy them, some of them in fairly high stakes uh, environments, without anyone ever stopping to say, what are the risks? What are the liabilities? Um, what are the metrics we're using to think about these risks over and above just accuracy? Because in that whole kind of, I don't know, I don't know what to call it, hype cycle, whatever it is, cascading kind of effects of uh, over-enthusiasm, um, 
all that gets prioritized is accuracy and time. And so data scientists get hired and they get told, train as accurate a model as you can in as short a period of time as possible. And that's what they're incentivized to do. And then at the end of it, we see organizations running into very serious problems. Um, and to go back to, to Miriam's point, that is frequently when the lawyers get called. That's when they frequently get the really, really hard questions that put you know millions of dollars and many months of, of development work um, in jeopardy. And so one of the things we just see all over the place is that lawyers are frequently intimidated by all of this, everything that's going on. And yet they end up being the gatekeepers, you know, right before deployment where they're getting asked a question, um, for example, what is a fair model? You know, the model's already been built, millions have already been put into it. And then suddenly this, this falls at the desk of the lawyers. Um, so hopefully that answered your question. I will just arbitrarily cut myself off there at the risk of talking too much. No, you can't, we want more. Uh, I think you've raised such an important point that there is this dichotomy where on the one hand, uh, the lawyer is the gatekeeper. We're supposed to protect our clients from creating harms and from uh, liability. And yet it's like we're afraid to speak AI for the most part. We can do it in every other field now in cyber. We can help clients understand the liabilities of the cars they're creating, uh, even though we don't know how to build a car. And yet when it comes to AI, uh, we seem to be asleep at the wheel and not fully upholding our duty to, to uh, flag these kinds of concerns. So I'd love to dig deeper and, and tell us when you're finding these risks and these liabilities, what are some of the common ones you're finding? What are some of the more interesting, complicated solutions or, or challenges you've helped uh, build and, and work around? Um, well, I think there, I mean, there, there, there's just, honestly, there's just so much, there's so much to say here. Um, I think we, we tend to bucket, um, so there are a variety of different types of risk. Um, and rather than getting too granular, I'll just give you kind of four high level buckets. So we think about risk related to transparency. Um, oftentimes, regulators will loop in accountability there. Um, risks related to privacy, security, and then fairness. Um, pretty much all of the liabilities we encounter in practice that we help our clients um, kind of navigate are related to those four. Um, I, I would also just highlight incident response. This is a big one. I guess they're, they're, I, I said I wasn't going to get too, too deep uh, or too granular, but I can't help myself. There are two other areas I would just um, raise. One is incident response. Um, I, I think for the same reasons as like this hype and this kind of exuberance leads organizations to, I think just embrace AI a little bit uh, more quickly than is, is responsible. Um, we see quite frequently organizations deploying AI without any actual incident response plans. And so there are all of these things that are tried and true in the world of traditional software uh, development and software security. And for a variety of reasons, they just don't apply directly in practice to AI systems and technologies. Um, and so incident response outside of those four buckets is another one. And then we also see third-party risks. Um, for a variety of reasons, it's just rare for any one organization to be in charge of the entire kind of model life cycle from soup to nuts, from data collection to feature extraction, you know, all the way, all the way to model deployment. And so there are almost always um, third parties involved and the third party involvement can kind of create all sorts of new types of risks and uncertainties. And we see organizations struggling with that a lot as well. 
Yeah, this is this is uh, something that we've we've worked on ourselves uh, at the forum is thinking about um, this question of procurement and how the you know sort of third party technology is being acquired and then being trained on data from a company. You know, what are all the risks that get created there? Probably too many to go into uh, in this podcast episode. But I want to just go a little bit further into the work that you do and. Um, and just try to tease out kind of what the specific role is that you think legal departments, general counsels, et cetera, should play. Because, of course, there is some degree of mandate here in terms of AI governance within a company for the board itself, for the executive C-suite, for the product teams, whether it's on the engineering side or sort of product management. And I'm curious kind of what you see as the kind of respective lanes of those different groups. And and in particular, I guess, kind of what you would, you know, if you were advising a company on how in particular they should empower their legal department and, and kind of structure their mandate, you know, what would you say? So great question. Um, I think there are really kind of two two main answers to that. One, when it comes down to it, um, a lot of the responsible and ethical issues related to AI are at their core legal issues. It doesn't mean that other folks shouldn't be involved. It doesn't mean that it doesn't touch other different types of expertise and business unit units. But when you're talking about fairness, there are frequently actual laws and regulations and precedent related to anti-discrimination um, that are, are core legal issues. And even when they're not core legal issues, there's a lot that can be gained and kind of extracted from that world. Um, same goes for privacy, transparency, explainability. Um, so I think that's the first point. The second point that interestingly um, uh, seems to be less intuitive, but but very important, is just the role of the lawyer. And, and when you think about the role of the lawyer, I think it's very important to highlight legal privilege. Um, lawyers are meant, they're, they're, they're really their sole purpose is to be able to go into organizations that they represent and understand any potential risks and evaluate those risks in relationship to legal frameworks or potential litigation. Um, and so the tool of legal privilege, um, which is designed to be able to facilitate an environment where, where organizations can openly talk about what is wrong, can openly talk about what might go wrong without generating more risks, is something that is unique to lawyers um, and is a central part of lawyers being able to do what they do. Um, and so there are a huge amount of risks um, related to AI. It's very important for people to be thinking about what those risks are. Um, but again, this is something that's kind of tried and true in the world of information security. It's very rare that an organization would get an information security audit or respond to an AI incident without getting lawyers involved just to make sure if they have any information that's particularly sensitive, it can remain protected. Um, but because AI is so new, um, folks are, are thinking about that less. And so what we frequently kind of over and over find ourselves doing when we're engaging with data scientists who've never really had like an outside counsel thinking about how to help them, we have to explain to them, this is how, this is, this is what it means to be a lawyer. This is what our obligations are. This is why you know we are obliged to do whatever whatever is in your best interest. So um, all of which to say to kind of sum up, um, lawyers definitely are not the only ones with a role to play in this, but I think lawyers are, are underappreciated and have a really, really critical role to play in this. Um, hopefully that hopefully that addresses it. Again, I'm just trying to uh, I, you're asking me questions I, I, I do all day, so um, uh, I'll leave it at that. 
Well, we'll, we'll hope to delve further, but looking at it from a different angle, uh, on the one hand, you've got the lawyers who have a pivotal role and they're not often enough playing that role in, in mitigating these risks. Um, but then you've also written, and, and we also have looked into the fact that the law is not always in the right place. It, it's not uh, drafted for the, this level of technology. Uh, there are some laws on the books that we think haven't been applied that should be, but you've said that the law is in a bad state and that it's impacting the tech industry. Why, why is it in a bad state and how is that playing out in this AI space in particular? Um, again, these are questions I could just talk about for hours. Let me just, I'll, I'll pick one concrete example, um, which is that um, there's an issue we're seeing um, uh, actually quite frequently related to anti-discrimination and fairness in AI. And so um, uh, in US anti-discrimination law, there are really kind of two types of discrimination. There's disparate treatment, which is um, more overt, making a decision on the basis of a protected class. And then there's disparate treatment where um, the protected class status is not actually the basis of the decision, um, but um, uh, ends up being a proxy so that there's an impact on protected groups that's that's uneven. Um, so, um, uh, that distinction actually makes a lot of sense um, to kind of boil it down. There's, you know, explicit and implicit discrimination. And the law says explicit discrimination is the worst. Basically, you can almost never do it. Some um, uh, 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 kind of caveat for affirmative action, but you can really never do it. And then um, implicit discrimination, there's kind of a, an understanding that you can't escape it because inequity is so kind of baked into our society but you need to measure it, you need to remediate it, you need to be very, very clear about how you are doing basically your, your best consistent with business necessity um, to minimize it. So that those are the two frameworks. Um, and um, what we see a lot is organizations uh, developing AI models that are trying to basically optimize for fairness. And so what they what what they they can do, and they're doing it through um, uh, frequently um, uh, uh, something called adversarial debiasing, is they're getting a bunch of models that have the same or similar similar levels of accuracy, but that have different discriminatory impacts. And so what we see, you know, uh, I would say not infrequently, is organizations that say we have, you know, I don't know, a dozen models. They're all going to perform the same, but one impacts, you know, women a lot worse. The other impacts African Americans a lot worse. The other impacts, you know, whatever protected category and they need to choose. They're at a level of granularity with the technology where they actually need to make a decision, kind of what are we gonna consider to be the most fair? And it's very, very hard to do that. There's no actual guidance. All of those decisions basically amount to some form of, of disparate treatment. Um, so there are many areas where the law um, needs to adapt. Um, that's just one we see folks really struggling with where um, uh, you know, it's clear the point of the laws is actually, you know, as, as originally implemented, is to help people make that decision, but they were not written or conceived of um, uh, uh, where organizations could have this level of kind of access to detail, where they could have this level of control about the actual decisions they're making. And again, that's a, that's a function of, I think, the really exciting power and opportunity of data science and AI, where just a few people can take a huge amount of data and create models that make you know decisions at scale, and then they can measure really kind of fine-grained things about those models. So, it's it's a problem that I'm both kind of at once excited by, 
but it's also a problem um, that's an issue because what you want to be able to do is to be able to give kind of clear guidance to organizations that have you know their hearts in the right place that are really trying to, to minimize fairness um, uh, uh, um, uh, without kind of um, uh, uh, with some with, with some level of, of of clarity and certainty, and and a lot of those organizations just just don't have that. So, what I'm hearing is is there's actually quite a lot of good law and kind of statute out there in terms of the basic issues that we're concerned about here, things like privacy, fairness, security, etc. But what's needed is some guidance and kind of translation and and kind of evolution of the the practice of how do you um, sort of operationalize your commitment to those principles in your AI governance or workflow. I'm curious if there are any areas as you have done this work and tried to help companies sort of figure out um, the answers to those questions, are there any areas that have emerged where you actually don't see there being enough statute or um, law in place where we might actually need some net new law um, to govern, you know, areas that we just hadn't had to think about before, for example? That's a hard question to answer because frequently what we do is we say, you know, this issue that you're confronting, you know, to our clients is very similar to this other issue that's been confronted for decades. And, you know, here, here's how we can help you learn from it. So that's like, the, that, that question is almost like anathema to what I spend most of my days doing. Um, but I mean, th there's, there's certainly a lot there. I think one of the areas where we see, um, uh, well, I'll give you an example of something that we do, and then I'll and then I'll tell you kind of why I think there are some major gaps. Um, but there are all sorts of concerns related to explainability and transparency. And so, when a model makes a decision, what do you tell the ultimate downstream user, or what do you tell the consumer? Um, there are some laws on the books. GDPR is one. Um, the new California, um, uh, 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 see the, the the new CCPA 2.0. Um, uh, which will come into effect actually mimics a lot of language from GDPR about providing meaningful information about the logic involved. Um, and there's also, um, uh, uh, in my personal opinion, a lot of that is just really unproven and kind of not clear and, and um, could use some, some, some clarification. But there is actual, uh, actually a lot of law and guidance in the consumer finance world about appeal and override. So like when you get an adverse uh, decision from a credit model, what are your rights? And in fact, how much information is too much information for a consumer to kind of reasonably be able to um, uh, uh, digest? So those are some areas where there actually already are laws in the book, some of them recent, some of them decades old. Um, but that said, I think there needs to be more. I think there needs to be more clarification about exactly what that means. So when laws at the state level in the U.S. and um, uh, elsewhere say, Consumers have a right to meaningful information about logic. What is meaningful? What is information? What is logic? There are very um, uh, uh, there are a lot of arguments you could make that basically those requirements in and of themselves are meaningless um, just because of the complexity of a lot of these systems. And so um, right now, I think what we see, um, which is fair, is kind of good faith efforts to comply with with the spirit of these laws um, and that's fine but i don't think that's enough especially as algorithmic decision making starts to kind of um, inhabit more and more of our everyday lives um, getting fuzzy information 
um, and fuzzy explanations is just not going to cut it. And so I think that's one area where regulators could actually add some specificity um, or add some additional requirements. I think we'd all agree that some clarity, some guardrails would be helpful. Uh, and I think even from industry, uh, you're hearing that, that they want to answer these questions and they particularly don't want to learn five years down the road that there's an answer that they can't accommodate or that it will take them millions or billions of dollars to go back and readjust to, to be in compliance. But I, I think that also leads us to another perspective here. So we, we've thought about how the law, lawyers should be applying what's on the books and, and the laws that are on the books and where there are gaps. Um, but the, the third way that we all think about this is through ethical, responsible governance frameworks and systems within companies. Because I think at the end of the day, we'd all agree that there you need to have the law clarifying you need to have the, the guardrails in place but if companies are not committed to doing this themselves there will be no shortage of harms and liabilities uh, whether the law says so or not um, but you've also taken an interesting stance in your work saying that ethical frameworks are not sufficient in and of themselves and would love for you to elaborate a little bit more on um, what what is not sufficient and what you would like to see from companies. Yeah, happily. I mean, I think in practice, what we see is ethical frameworks and ethical kind of practices end up being um, kind of a collection of statements that are non-objectionable, um, which is great and it's fine. And how could you object to something that's not objectionable? Um, but that's actually exactly the point. Um, uh, these are really hard decisions. These systems are being deployed in high stakes environments, impacting tens of millions of people. Um, and so um, uh, these types of um, kind of very high level, um, frequently deeply ambiguous um, uh, 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 kind of declarations of values just end up at the end of the day, not being able to be translated into AI systems. And we see this all over the place. Um, uh, well, honestly, I think what, what we really see on a daily basis is that AI ethical principles end up being um, more marketing exercises than they are, you know, anything technical. It's very common for technical practitioners and data scientists to have virtually no involvement. Um, their PR exercises, their marketing exercises, they're, you know, they're, they're about involving the C-suite. Um, but when it comes time to actually say, how are we going to embed this? within our model documentation, within our testing regimen, within the way that we validate and audit our models, um, there's just an absolute disconnect. And so um, it's not that there's anything wrong with ethical principles. Ethical principles are great and wonderful. Um, what's wrong, I think, is what happens very frequently where organizations think that the very act of creating high-level ethical principles is sufficient to actually protect their AI. And it's not, it is, it is, it is just like wildly insufficient. Um, and so that's what I've written about before. Um, yeah, that's what I've written about before. And I, and I think the uh, um, uh, kind of the reason why I'm on my, my, my soapbox, you know, at the moment on this um, is because um, it really seems, especially in Silicon Valley, it seems as if um, there really is this belief that like, if we, if we get together, if we put our, our, our values down on paper, if we all say, this is what we believe, and then we make it public, then you know we've really we've really taken a big bite out of this problem, um, and that's just not the case. Again, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it, but 
you're not done when you hit publish on your ethical AI principles. Um, and so um, my own kind of personal bias is actually against ethical AI principles because um, I don't want them to serve as a distraction from what I think is the really gritty day-to-day -day work of, um, uh, of actually debiasing, of actually you know, um, delineating and mitigating all the different risks that, that AI can generate. I think that makes all three of us then uh, people who uh, spend all day uh, talking about how um, it's all well and good uh, to articulate your principles, but uh, until you can actually figure out how to operationalize them in a meaningful way, uh, it's, you know, just a bunch of nice words and thoughts and concepts. Um, I want to just sort of pivot us a little bit here. You know, we have a new administration in town, in your town. Um, we have talked a little bit about kind of what might be some gaps in terms of law, legislation, et cetera. But thinking a little bit more holistically, you've been inside of government uh, in the uh, intelligence and, and um, specifically in the FBI, uh, but you've also obviously been working closely with the private sector and others. You know, if, if, if you were to be you know, asked what the agenda should be for the new administration in terms of AI, whether it's you know, policy and regulation or investments and kind of encouraging uh, the ecosystem to develop in certain ways, uh, what would be your top recommendation or two? Um, I mean, I think the first, the, 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 the most clear recommendation is just focus on, focused on the data. It's very frequently the things that are the least sexy that are the most important. And I think anyone with like a government background would just like understand that to be true. You know, like it's always, um, uh, it, it, it's uh, less frequently the pe person standing up at the press conference, um, uh, you know, who's doing the cutting edge work and more often the person just way in the back. Um, and so I think data and, and um, just the very unglorious database administration um, uh, work, I think it's very, very, very overlooked. There was actually just, um, a paper released by Google Research, um, which I kind of won't go grab um, uh, and, and cite, but um, uh, but but the, the whole point—it's it's about the cascading effects of data—is that everybody wants to focus on the models. You know, the models are the, the shiniest thing in the AI ecosystem, um, and if you develop the model and you deploy the model, you get all the credit. But way underneath, what's really really important um, is actually collecting the data. Um, maintaining the data, monitoring the data for things like drift or bias. There are all sorts of things and, and ways that the underlying kind of ecosystem and the data can go wrong um, and severely, severely impact the actual models that are deployed. And so I think um, if we as a society, as a country, if we want to get AI right in, you know, the health space or in the national security space, which is, you know, where I spent a lot of time thinking about, um, it's all well and good to think about the models, but if we can't think about getting the data, maintaining the data, making sure the right folks have access to it, um, I think um, we're not going to get very far, frankly. Um, and I think to that same uh, point, I'm also pretty worried about um, the kind of mon monopolistic potential of AI to only be able to be used by the biggest organizations, the Facebooks and the Googles, you know, and, and the Amazons of the world. Um, and I think it's a real, it's a real danger because this is, this is a technology that, um, uh, whose value is really, really connected to scale um, and to data collection. And so one of the things that um, I would love to see is um, 
more of a focus, a national focus on, on um, uh, making access to the underlying data, making access to APIs that might be used to train models um, more available so that if you wanna do cutting edge research um, in this world, um, you can do it outside of, again, you know, uh, 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 some tech giants that I can only count on on one hand. I hate to wrap this discussion. I'm sure Mark feels the same way because it's so much uh, information. It's so useful. It's so informed and we want to go deeper. But given that we are at time, uh, we'd like to ask you a question that we wrap each episode with. Uh, and that is, what are you excited about with the AI space? What are you worried about? What are you looking forward to? So what are your rose, your thorn and your bud in responsible AI? Wow. Okay. Um, uh, so um, let me start with the the thorn first, because that's the, the easiest. Um, I think it's just the hype. I think there's there. It's it's all too easy um, for organizations to embrace AI before they're ready, and then cause themselves and others huge amounts of harm. And we, we see that all the time. So I think that's that's the thorn. Um, I think the rose is that th this really is a a transformative technology. I think you know nowhere better than than the health space. Um, I think is that is that more apparent? We are just kind of drowning in data. I mean, we're living through a pandemic. I think it's it's fairly evident that um, access to data, um, insights from data, are just incredibly incredibly hard to come by, especially in in the healthcare space. Um, and we have seen, I think, I think the tech community has been really been underwhelmed by the ability of these very hyped technologies to actually help during the pandemic. Um, but that said. I think there are all sorts of really, really interesting examples where we can see um, the ability of AI to, to impact um, and affect huge and really beneficial changes. And so I'm really, I think, really, really deeply excited by the ability of AI to just have an impact, to get better diagnostics, quicker diagnostics, expand access um, in, in, uh, uh, in healthcare. Um, and then I think the bud, I mean, honestly, I think it's the same. I think it's the same as the, the, the rose and the bud are the same thing, which is just I think um, as organizations, um, public and private, adopt AI more and more, I think we're going to see more examples of exactly kind of what I just talked about in the healthcare industry, which is um, uh, increasing access to insights, to expertise that otherwise would have been very expensive and, and, and hard, to, um, uh, hard to come by. Well, thank you, Andrew, for giving us so much to think about, to digest, and, and hopefully to come back to you for more at some point down the road. Happily. I would love to. Thanks so much, Andrew. Much appreciated. Well, Miriam, I thought that was a great conversation. Andrew is really a, a thoughtful guy, and he's just had so many different angles on this question of AI and ethical AI. I, I just really... um appreciated his perspectives. I agree. I think he has so many insights that we all need to be talking about. You know, I, I really like how he focused on some of the greatest harms right now in the AI space is the snake oil. It's not the actual AI. It's the blowing up and, and tr trumpeting uh, without 
substance of what it could be and and some of the harms that will fall out from that um, misstatement and misallocation of its use and power. Uh, and, and on the other side, looking at um, the marketing terms that are used and, and deployed as sufficient to pr provide a, an ethical framework. I liked how he parsed apart uh, what is marketing and, and what is real. And, and so obviously, I don't think he meant that he doesn't believe in an ethical framework, um, but he doesn't believe in the false statements that are not deeply connected to those working on it in a meaningful way so that there's impact in the organization. Two phenomenon that I think are really widespread in AI today and, and that where his insights are key. I couldn't agree more. And I think another area that I, I really found his commentary valuable was on the uh, need for more guidance and uh, specificity on how existing law needs to be applied to the new kinds of situations and dynamics created by AI. I think it's another area where there is a lot of hype. There are a lot of conversations about you know, what should be the new laws, what should be the new regulations, and there are going to be areas where we need new law and new regulation. Uh, but of course, in a lot of the areas that we're concerned about, particularly where it is concerning you know, protected classes of individuals, uh, non-discrimination, privacy, security, the kinds of areas that Andrew focuses on, there is actually a lot that's already on the books. And the question is, how does that get applied and how should companies uh, operate in a way that um, is compliant with those existing laws in this new set of um, you know, ways of using technology and interacting with, with citizens and consumers and, and data. So I thought that was just a really important conversation and one that uh, I hope we can dive into more in other episodes. I agree. And you know, I loved his uh, assessment that the general counsel, the lawyers need to be a part of that conversation. I uh, could not agree more. I'm so glad he's flagging that point. We need to be protecting our clients from creating harms and from facing liabilities down the road. Uh, and so they need to be a key partner with companies in, in reducing the harms from AI and ensuring that it is trustworthy. Yeah, huge role for, for general counsels, for legal departments, for external counsel, as uh, Andrew highlighted, that kind of particular role that uh, sometimes needs to be played by external lawyers and yeah, just a lot of food for thought there. So yeah, great episode and, and looking forward to the next one. Indeed, I'll look forward to seeing you then. All right, see you, Miriam. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 